Today's episode is brought to you by MetaMask Portfolio. You'll be hearing more about them later on. But for now, let's get into today's interview. Happy to welcome George Robertson, a 40-year veteran in fixed income and volatility, who's got a lot of views that I think are at a very right angle to the ongoing mainstream economic discourse. George, I have seen your commentary on Twitter where you are at Bicker in Brattle. Just quickly, tell us what, tell us briefly about about your your career, your, your experience, as well as some of the your economic thought, which are are in contrast to, let's say, a lot of ongoing mainstream economic discourse. Sure. I, I started with Solomon Brothers when there was a Solomon Brothers in 1981, and it was in the era when 30-year treasuries hit 15%. So high rates is no mystery are are bizarre to me at all. After that, I ended up as trading bonds with the well-known, at that time, since deceased, but the well-known arbitrageur and hedge fund guy, John Mulhern, where I ran bonds for him. And his partner, by the way, at that time was Izzy Englander, uh, who went on to Millennium. I think Izzy has upscaled his, be- his wardrobe such that I don't know if, if you, he would remember me, but we were, we were in a lot of contact after our work for them. After that, I went to became the CIO for the Cargill in-house Arbor hedge fund. Uh, which did quite well until we ran into mortgage land in 93, 94, 95. And it did a great job for me in terms of really educating me in terms of mortgages, how they behave, what they do, what they can't do, and, and how destructive they can be. I did the right thing, called the right thing. So even though the fund was shut down, they gave me the job of running equities for Cargill in North America, along with volatility and derivatives and so on for Cargill. This is not in Chicago. This is in Minneapolis. Caught the eye of the Bass family down in Fort Worth, Texas. And I came down as the co-head of their trading and hedge efforts in Fort Worth for the family estate, which was considerable at that time. So the brothers had gone on their own way, but it was it was quite a chunk of money. And half the job was to defend the, the family's estate value. And the other half was to go out and have fun, which was just a, a job from, it, it wasn't a job. It was, it was just great, great fun. Uh, I thought I was brilliant, so I went off to start my own hedge fund in New York. Uh, it was uh, Credit Fall. Uh, did well on the first race, but I, I, I walked right into Visteon for GM credit downgrades and my capital lost patience with a flat return. Uh, other guys were losing 20, 30%. So I thought my return was great, but it didn't pay the bills. And from there, I, I moved on where uh, Morgan Stanley hired me to be in charge of long duration. I, this is the, the, the center of understanding of U.S. treasuries and risk-free in portfolio management. And this is for Morgan Stanley Investment Management, where I was in charge of the so-called the long duration business. After the mortgage guys again popped up and devastated Morgan Stanley Investment Management at the time. What year, 2003? Uh, this is this is 2008 to 2012. Okay, okay. Uh, I actually, I came on board 2007, early 2007. So I got another lesson on mortgages. By now, I'm, I've, I was fed up getting expertise in mortgages. I've really got involved in Twitter to the point where my risk manager, my, my partner in life, thinks that I'm out of my gourd for how much time I spend on Twitter. But it revived a lot of old habits and, and capabilities, which, which kept me sharp and which I enjoy doing anyway. Um, and it, it's, it's really opened my eyes to, it, it, I, I'm, just, I'm just gobsmacked on the 
the direction that everyone's taking in terms of analysis of the economy, how assets relate to the economy, and especially a fixed income U.S. treasuries. So I, I think I've had some experience, at least I've held a job longer than three or four months in these areas of expertise. So I think I have some experience to comment and hopefully be helpful in terms of U.S. treasuries, relationship to NGDP, and Federal Reserve monetary policy. So uh, NGDP, nominal GDP. So I'd say there are two camps right now. There's the camp who called for a recession last year and was wrong and are you know, now adjusting their views out of it. They're saying, we're still going to have a recession. They're moving the, the, the date out. And then there's the camp who did not expect for a recession. They were either in the, the no landing camp or the soft landing camp. And some of that, even that second camp, are still expecting a recession. So it, it's sort of the bull case now is, oh, actually, you know, we're going to have a slowdown, but it's not going to be a recession or you know, all these, these forces that stimulated growth in 2023 are not, are not going to be there. You stand on the other side. You think that, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that we are in the middle of a huge boom that will continue and that stocks will continue to significantly outperform bonds. Explain the, the source of your view. What, what, what makes you say that? There's not a lot of moving parts to it. It's just that if the U.S. government spends as much money as it has not seen since World War II, that chances are four trillion to six trillion. It's hard to estimate exactly what the number is. Comes into the economy in a very short span of a year, and there's still some trail to it now. That the economy will expand. I mean, that's that's just you know that's Keynesian or even the most common sense approach to understanding macroeconomics. And then along with that, if the Fed has deliberately pursued policy, which they They've been very public about, and it's very easy to you know backtrack on me and, and check this out, where they leave the monetary game and they go into a forward guidance or what they call Delphic and Odyssean type of management of the monetary policy, which means that there's no real monetary policy. It means that there, there's just assuasion and warning that, you know, shaking their finger that one day we will really tighten up and really, really be bad if you guys persist in this way. And as long as they can see like a year, two years forward where that that is being priced into what they intend to do, they feel that that's policy. Well, that was all fine and good when there was no real movement in the fiscal impulse, the, the federal government's involvement with the U.S. economy, nor was there a large exotic, exogenous shock like COVID was. And the Fed could sort of, you know, hide under its reputation gained in the great moderation and basically bullshit for about the last decade. They fogged Congress, they fogged pretty well everything, and, and then they went off and institutionally captured all the major media and most of the mentors and, and the thought leadership by a very heavy-handed use of access, that if you wanted to get involved with the Fed in any way, shape, or form, you will do exactly what Michelle Smith says you will do, and you will say the same thing, and you will not differ. Otherwise, you will lose your job at Wall Street Journal, which happened, did, did happen to some journalists, or New York Times, or, or whatever key media position was. The Fed was very, almost violent in terms of how they controlled the press since 2012-2013. I mean, George, what is the underlying truth that the journalists, if they expose this truth, they get they get fired? What is it that the Fed is trying, when you say fog, what, what I mean, they, yeah. they, they never they never really got to it because uh, it'd be like, I, gosh, I can't remember his last name. Great journalist, Pedro. DaCosta. DaCosta. I'm pretty sure it was him. He had the temerity to ask a question after yelling 
at a very sloppy press conference where he said, does a couple mean two or more? And that was the end of his career at the Wall Street Journal. And things like that, people got the drift very quickly. And then not only that, if you wanted to have access to the Fed, uh, it was great for a young 25, 26-year-old journalist at a major paper to suddenly have Michelle Smith organizing a one-on-one with Yellen or a one-on-one on Bernanke, which is in Bernanke's book, by the way. He outlines very clearly that he did this. So they never really George, got George, I don't think you answered yeah. my question. What is it? Let's say if I wanted to interview Jerome Powell, what, what would I uh, have to avoid doing? What was the the, the fundamental tree? Like, because in, in, in my world, no, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, oh, if I interview a lot of people who say there's going to be a recession, the Fed doesn't want that. I don't experience that. What What is it that they're, the Fed is trying to, uh, you know, cover up? Not that you said that, but. It's really basic and it's common sense. Just ask them, what's the reaction function? Like, okay, delta Fed funds equals delta NGDP or delta employment. What is the reaction function? Be rough about it. I, you know, we, we, you know, if you get it within 50 basis points, so, you know, half a percent to 1%, we're happy. We, we know there's a lot of noise, but what is your reaction function? So when you raise Fed funds from, say, three to four, what do you anticipate will happen fairly quick order to employment? If you raise it from three to five and a half, what is the reaction function that the Fed is seeking? What can they table in front of Congress that this is what we're doing for monetary policy? There is no reaction function. It's an empty suit. And if the Fed does not have a reaction function, and if it just exists on terms of propaganda and trying to shape forward expectations, the truth of the matter, which I think Congress will will figure out sooner or later, is there is no monetary policy. It's just it's just political propaganda and shaping, which is completely appropriate for Treasury and the administration to pursue uh, because that's their job. But it's completely inappropriate and actually a absence of responsibility for the Fed to do such. You're saying the Federal Reserve wouldn't have an answer on how much a certain you know 100 basis points would would move nominal GDP. Number one, I don't know if that's true, but would you say also that? not just the Fed funds, but the one year is moving, the two years moving, you know, when the, the Fed funds rate goes up, the 10 year rate, you say, you think there's no effect? I'm, I'm saying that the Fed only has one interest rate tool mm-hmm. and that's Fed funds. Mm-hmm. It's it clearly documented and denoted for, you know, ever since Humphrey Hopkins came, it's just the, it's just the way there is. The two year, the five year and the 10 year is not a Fed tool. There's a brief period around 2000, oh, 1990s, where Franklin Raines and Fannie Mae really leaned in hard on the tenure in terms of, you know, they, they had 45 days to put these securities together. So they, they had to hedge up the mortgages that they had in the warehouse, supposedly. But actually what they did was they, they really leaned in hard and tried to shape U.S. Treasury tenures. But even then, they could only do it about, I don't know, 30 basis points, 40 basis points. And the end effect was nada. I mean, they didn't do anything for the housing market one way or the other. Um, were they trying to get the tenure up or down? For the most part, it seems like they're trying to get it down. Trying well, they should have had the Fed cut 300 basis points. That 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 probably could have worked. Well, then they could have because there was a reaction function. That if the Fed did cut 300 basis points, it, there'd be a response. Well, there's a but response now, George. Nothing. What nothing. are you talking I, about? The tenure was at two percent, and now it's was at five percent. The the <clears throat> there's there's a big I don't know. If I can be polite about it, there's a there's almost like a willful ignorance 
to what is risk-free rates. Risk-free rates have nothing to do with tightening or easing or they'll restrict the economy or they'll promote the economy. Risk-free rates are the risk-free rates. They're the, they're the, and they're not even, it's very noisy. There's not really an equilibrium, but it's the proximity of where money that has no risk trades at, at various maturities, very maturity points. And that would be the, the, the you say risk-free rates, you're talking about treasuries all across the treasuries. country? Yeah, yeah treasuries. treasuries and also that part of uh, agencies and uh, mortgage-backed securities, which have an implicit risk-free element to them. Credit uh, risk-free, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you raise the risk-free rate, and, and there's also good questions in terms of whether U.S. Treasury 10-year right now is the risk-free rate. But if you have the risk-free rate that goes from, like, say, 5% to 10%, it will do nothing to the U.S. economy. It, it won't. It won't restrict it. It won't expand it. Why? In fact, because if you think of that risk-free rate, how can it be risk-free if it has an impact on the economy such that it becomes riskier or less risky? The economy is, and the risk-free rate is. If the economy is growing at say ten percent, and it, and the ten years say I'm just grabbing one one treasury at ten percent. Then they're sort of like quasi equilibrium, but really that's that's really a, a sort of a, a, a too rough a way to put it. Well, what it does mean is that there's more than enough juice in the economy to to do whatever buys and sells of the ten year you want, and there's more than enough rate in the ten years to fuel that economy. At this isn't me, by the way. This is Keynes. This is this is Fisher. This is you know. There's a lot of brighter guys than me that have come up with this idea over the last century. But for some reason, what this was the mainstay of economic thought has been just shredded and discarded over the last you know decade, uh, and especially so for the last year, where where I think it's just cockamamie when people come and say that the, the you know the, I, like the Fed itself is saying it. It's just mind blowing for anybody who spent the first thirty years from like nineteen eighties to now to two thousand eight, two thousand ten that the Fed is claiming that they're tightening the economy via the raise in the 10-year treasury rate. That goes against okay. pretty well every economic doctrine I've ever read. Well, I think we, we've read some different economic doctrines. So, okay, so to answer my, my no, no, question but, about- No, not, sorry, sorry. Not to challenge you, Jack. George, like, what George, doctrine George, are you talking second. about? George, one second. You said that the Fed funds does not have a really you know, effect on the economy. I said, well, what about the 10-year? You think anywhere on the yield curve, interest rates do not have an effect on the economy. That no, is your... that, that's, not what it, that's not what I said. Okay. I said right now, the Fed funds that are only, I don't know, uh, 60%, 50% of what has been the prescription for how much Fed funds have to move to have an impact in the economy uh, has no impact. In other words, if and the, the, the Taylor rule and other things are not hard-ass conservative ideals, they're actually just very well thought out ideas in terms of the relationship between NGDP, MV equals PY to Fed funds. And the Taylor rule and all monetarism, monetary policy ideas up to, you know, suddenly Bernanke and everyone decided to rewrite everything, um, said that you have to raise Fed funds, not just to be in aligned with NGDP, but to be in a shock. And it has to be done quickly and it has to be done like in a very short time span. Uh, you know, the, they don't, the thing, the Reuters machine doesn't go ding, ding, ding anymore, but it, it has to be ding, ding, ding. And suddenly the Fed's raised 50 basis points. And then they do another 100. And then they do another 50. Then they get your attention and they're like 
two, 300 basis points over what would be a neutral rate. The economy responds. And then it very quickly comes back to the norm, I don't know, in, in about two, three quarters, which is the nature of most recoveries that we've had in the past. But now the idea is that there's a, a neutral, a natural rate, this, this Wixillian rate, that, which is another conversation maybe, but that there's a rate that is at you know complete equilibrium with the employment sought and the, the economic growth, whereby if the Fed funds are below that rate, no matter what the hell has transpired over the last year or so, or if the Fed funds are over that rate, it is either a cumulative ease or a cumulative tightening. It's just bunk. It hasn't showed up ever since they started talking like this since 2013. There is no leg. There is no tightening. There is no ease. On the other hand, when they went down to ZERP, all those years and years that we had like zero lower bound or ZERP never showed up with any sort of stimulus to the economy. There is no cumulative. And year after year after year, Bernanke at first, then Yellen, Woodford started this off with 2012. There's all sorts of, you know, there's a cumulative. Trust us. I don't know where the hell the account is. It's not held at the Fed. It's not held in any banks. There's no cumulative account anywhere, but it is an ease. And then vice versa, when after COVID and the COVID inflation that, re that came about, well, now there's a leg. There's a cumulative leg of tightening. It, it doesn't exist. It, it, I mean, surely after two years, we should see something. And we don't see a thing. 19 months. Not two years, 19 months. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. I would say even three months should have enough effect. At least it used to have a great effect. What we do see is the, the sentiment sh shaping that since the Fed has gone to nothing but forward guidance, uh, it's given three li free license to fellow travelers to shape up whatever crap they want. And right now, the, 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 the spiel is that the Fed will tighten, and the proof of it is that equities will go down. And look, they are going down. So therefore, the Fed is tightening. But it's not a cumulative. It's not a, it's not a tightening. There, there, there's no impact. Meanwhile, NGDP just goes from from you know strength to strength to strength to strength as it should with you know four to six trillion of a fiscal impulse with nothing being done by the fed ngdp has gone down the rate of growth has gone down it's still very high but it has gone down i i'm willing to accept seven percent is is pretty high yeah yeah you know maybe okay maybe it, it touched on toward ten percent or so but seven percent is still extraordinary uh especially since we left two and a half percent three percent not too long ago the thing I'm trying to get is that there's a huge disconnect between reality in terms of just dollars and cents, money coming in, money going out, people buying houses, people getting paid, wages, personal consumption expenditure, all of the metrics that used to be considered to be truth, like like this is what is happening, versus how the the general popular mem is describing the economy. The economy is not in a recession. It's not going to be in a recession. It's not going to be in a, a, a slowdown. There, there's, it, it's just, it's, it's almost idiotic to say that, well, housing has been pretty good, but by gosh, in two months, something's going to happen and housing is going to fall off the face of the cliff. It, it's, it might happen, I know, but an asteroid might hit Earth. It is just, it's just against any sort of trend or any sort of reality that we've experienced in the last three years to make these these claims. What I would say is that, well, if we've had three to six trillion that is yet to be digested, chances are things will carry on as they are now. 
And then if you if you get shut of the Fed, if you look at the Fed and see what exactly is going on, not in terms of like speak and, you know, the Fed speak and, and the propaganda, but actually the flows, the, the actual like banks tightening or banks lending or this or that, you know, the, 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 there's irreconcilable disconnect right now, which when it does connect, I think is going to be a big bang and off we go to the races. The other thing that's going on too is that the Fed is really necessary. It's it's one of the greatest creations of U.S. democracy, I think. And it was there to solve the the problem of the boom and bust that we had in before 1913, the Gilded Age, the, the panic of 73. And then then every three, four years thereafter, there was another panic. This one's the real panic of 1873. Yeah. Oh, it just went on and on. And it, things are just, the wheels are falling off. Meanwhile, Carnegie and J.P. Morgan, everyone was just minting money, Jay Gould, all those guys. And at the same time, the monopolies and the trusts had to have the Sherman Act and the various antitrust measures. The combination of the Fed, which was to take the, the hard edges of the resulting boom and bust in, in liquidity, which is what their focus was, should have, was to begin with and still is, uh, with the, the legal regulations that were in the Sherman Act were a, a bookends which settled the U.S. economy and allowed steady growth that had some equity to develop. And it worked. I mean, we had a recession. There's all sorts of learning thoughts. Whenever the Fed left their channel, whenever they went off to help with policy, like employment now or not employment, or when they went to, like Eccles, talked to FTR to say, I'm going to help you out. They were way too easy. Just calamity happened. You know, it, it just... I don't think the Fed has ever made a successful effort into policy, but for twice, which was to fund World War One and for fund World War II, and now to fund the COVID response. But anytime they've gone into the policy element of life, it's just been like, look out. Um, and now I, I think it's it's not so much of a problem because the Fed has no teeth. They 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 have a lot of regulatory things, they have macroprudential things, they're very powerful, they're big beasts, they have Huge QE, QT, but as far as like that hitting the rubber hits the road in terms of how much houses are built in Ohio, they have no impact. You laid out at the beginning how you have a lot of experience in mortgage land. What, in your experience, happens to mortgage refinancings when rates go down versus when they go up? And what is the, what is the effect on, of existing home sales between, between interest rates? Outside of a sort of a Ponzi boom in housing, I, you know, you just show up and lie about how much money you're going to make and we'll give you like 600000 to buy a house. Those type of situations where there's an excess financing available for anybody in any, you know, to go buy a house, doesn't matter what, what the hell your income is. Outside of that, rates have had no impact on the housing market. In other words, the on, amount on of- refis, what about refis? Refis, everything. No, no way, George. However, the concessional prepayment rate was 40% in, in the spring and summer of 2020. And in the March of this year, it was 3%. Let's go back to when I was living and eating and dying on this stuff every day. What is very obvious is that I, I like to call them the dentists of America. Just make mincemeat out of Wall Street. Because goodbye, gosh, these guys know how to trade the prepayment. They, they, they know like... At 42 basis points advantage, we will refund. At, at, at 41, we won't. 
who's going to make mincemeat of Wall Street? Regional banks? Or? No, I'm just talking to the homeowners of America. Okay, okay, yeah. they, they became by by the end of by mid '90s, and especially going into the the housing crisis in 08, 2012, these guys were just miles ahead of all the the boneheads that I worked with. All had PhDs talking about mortgage derivatives and vectors and and alt A's and all that stuff. Well, meanwhile, the the dentist who has traded up his house over the last 15 years in Long Island, and now he's got a really decent house, he was trading the bejesus out of the market way beyond anything in terms of skill and profit that Wall Street was demonstrating. They're all into like, okay, how can we collect this stuff together and rip people off? That was basically the, the Wall Street trading uh, approach. Nowadays, I think that skill is still very much intact, especially if you consider the demographics, the baby boomers, and this is their last house. And if they if they don't handle this one right, um, if they don't handle this sell and the refi and and whatever, it's, it's it has really serious impact. So I think what's happening with the split between existing and by the way, what your your concern you said is not showing up in new homes construction; it's only in existing houses. Is that they want to make sure that they nail what they think is close to the top of the mortgage rates. And if it's eight and a half, they'll be in like Flint. I mean, if that's, if that's what the, the peak is, if it's at seven and a half, they're not going to touch it. They're going to hang on to their house and hang on to their financing because they're long, they're long a huge option that, that is incredibly valuable, which is that refi. If you think about it now, if, if mortgage rates are seven and a half percent and they're at like say three and a half percent average, for a big chunk of the of the existing yeah. homes, that's four percent per year annuity stream, which is not to be it's not trivial. It's it's a very very valuable annuity stream, and they're not going to just sort of like oh I I think I need a bigger kitchen so we're going to move. It's it's going to be a very thoughtful, and a very in aggregate, the crowd the wisdom of the crowd is going to come through, and when as soon as they feel that the mortgage rates that this cycle has ended. Uh, I think we're going to get a boom in housing that's just going to be, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shock everyone. I, we saw it in 08, 09, only the other way around. We saw it in the late 90s. We, I've seen these booms before, and I think we're poised for that right now. Today's interview is brought to you by MetaMask Portfolio, your one-stop shop to manage your crypto assets and access a range of web free services all in one place. Overseeing your crypto assets across different wallets and networks can be very complicated. MetaMask Portfolio solves this by giving you the reins to manage your crypto from a single decentralized application or DAP. Just connect to MetaMask Portfolio to get a bird's eye view of all your coins, tokens, and NFTs, and you can easily buy, sell, swap, bridge, and stake crypto assets at competitive rates right within the app from a vetted list of providers. No more jumping between dozens of sites and apps. MetaMask Portfolio lets you do more in Web3 your way, giving you secure and convenient access to a wide range of features and services all in one place. Manage your portfolio your way with MetaMask Portfolio. Click the link in the description of today's episode to get started. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. And do these booms typically start with a fall in interest rates? Because I look at the really sharp fall in like single family homes under construction, and it pretty much lines up exactly with the first the month of the, the Federal Reserve's first interest rate hike. I would debate that. My data shows that new home constructions, and you have to take in everything, like yet to start, has started, you know, sitting in inventory, all the, all the new homes, uh, has been incredibly stable and is trading to not price, but is trading to employment. 
in other words, about 930,000 people, seems to be all that the housing industry feels is available or that they'll hire. These housing giants are really acting in lockstep in terms of how much housing they think they can build and what the new construction should be. And it's very, it's been very constant for, you know, not since last year, but, I, you know, very constant since the, the COVID surge in, you know, 2021. And it seems to be the ceiling is 930, maybe 910, maybe 900 residential construction employment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. R- residential construction has, yeah, grown. I think it's flatlining now. But but just, George, I'm not saying that uh, mortgage prepayment speed is the economy or has a you know huge effect on nominal GDP. But you would say that when interest rates collapse, as they did in 2020, it causes a huge refinancing boom. And that when they surge, as they have over the past 19 months, it causes a, a flatlining of that activity. You would grant that, yes? Not necessarily, because what happens is that when that refinancing boom, as you mentioned, comes about, the home prices will rise probably equal to the present value of that of that windfall. In other words, it's not a windfall. So if I gain a 2% per year advantage by my refi, um, actually, I would say it's almost a certainty, you know, books balance, there's no free money, that the home prices will expand, that will negate that 2% uh, annuity flow. Right. But that takes, it takes a year, and that's why refis went down in 2021. But it, it's not... I, I think it's almost immediate. It's it's what? very quick, very swift. And uh, again, this is I can sharpen up. I have a report in my my files that 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 tracks this pretty closely. Home values will rise equal to the annuity windfall that you gain by a refi. In other words, if if rates have gone from five percent down to two percent or three percent, um, the home values will go up equal to that that two percent, one and a half percent per year. Now, the other thing of interesting, too, is that people assume that this refi happened. And yeah, mortgage rates did drop, no doubt about it. But they didn't drop anywhere near to U.S. Treasuries. They're, in fact, the, the 15-year federal home FHA conventional to like the 30-year FHA conventional since 2020, actually since 2009, has had a positive yield curve all the time. So while treasuries have gone very inverted in terms of the market price, the whatever that risk-free element is in conventional mortgages has maintained a positive curve. So from my point of view, that that is actually the real curve. And then, well, t- ten, the thirty ten ten the ten thirty treasury spread is nearly always positive, but but that doesn't mean. That yeah, the, the long date part of the curve is rare, very rarely inverted. I think Jack, I, I think you're apples to apple, apples to oranges there. But I think a, a rough estimate is just as useful as if you fine tune it. Is that the 30 year conventional mortgage, which is about equivalent, we can say it's t- equivalent to the 10 year Treasury, knowing that it's not. It's it's actually a shorter duration than 10 year, but that's okay. Let's just say it's 10 year, and then the 15 year conventional mortgage. Again, that's used as production for the FHA and the GSA mortgage-backed securities is a five-year. Okay. So that slope between five and 10-year effective, you know, equivalent duration has always been positive since 2008, 2009. So my thinking is that this is probably more reflective of the real risk-free rate, because if you think about it, Fannie may try to, to monkey with like, you know, giving an advantage to home buyers. And it failed. 
and I don't, I don't see how there's an advantage now. So the, the actual risk-free rate that's implicit and priced in mortgages um, is probably the real risk-free rate in the United States. Because if you think of it otherwise, there'd just be chaos in the housing market if they were 200 basis points too low or they were 200 basis points too high. It just wouldn't work. Why, why do you think it's the risk-free rate as opposed to the treasuries, which are you know much more commonly used? Well, it, it, it's this is probably, if I can be the most helpful, this is where I'm the most helpful is that rather than run around and, and say, and do what the Fed's told you to do, like yield curve is very inverted and, and then it's picked up by other people. Yes, yield curve is very inverted. And then you get the this goofy idea of bear steepener. Well, it's, not the, it's not the Fed that's promulgating the yield curve. Oh, yes, it's definitely the Fed promulgating. No, it's not. If any, Jay Powell, uh, he, does, he does not want questions. I on- think, Jack, I, I, I think that to think otherwise insults their intelligence. They are very bright guys. And that was that's QE and QT. They want to have maximum impact, especially because they have no Fed funds impact. So they're searching for everything they can to to come up with a, a spiel as to why they're actually very effective, very much in charge, and and very powerful. So yes, I don't think I don't think I've heard Jay Powell talk about an inverted yield curve as an intentional policy tool. Uh, well, they just three Fed governors just took off on that spiel about over the last three weeks. And Nick Tamiris comes up with that. You know, he's been coming up with that for every month, every couple of weeks for the last three, four months in the Wall Street Journal. I would say um, the private sector economists and particularly, you know, recessionistas on Twitter, they're the ones who talk about the yield curve. The yield curve is telling us the truth without my sharing, whether I agree with them or not. I, I would not say the Federal Reserve is, they, they acknowledge it for sure, but I, they are not the promulgator of the, the yield curve, well, I, would, I would say. Well, no one's going to say anything. And Twittersphere, I'm a JP Morgan analyst, whatever, if it's contrary to what the Fed will allow, they just don't do it these days. So if the Fed didn't like this spiel, they would really stop it out quick. Cash carry would be out there talking about it, Waller, you know, there'd be 101's guys saying, like, that's just ridiculous what they're saying. Their silence is actually affirmation, if not origination, of the idea that the yield curve is a tightening. And anyway, the Fed has said that that the yield curve is an effective tightening in terms of where it is right now with rates. Now, the point I'm making is that it's not the yield curve. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an administrative rate that the Fed has set um, for whatever reasons. I think maybe it might even been after the fact, like they did QE and they said, oh, we're actually setting rates, but we want to keep QE on because what we really want is to go from fractional reserves to ample reserves. We want to we want to get even more pressure and hold use of our Dodd Frank stress test and our macro prudential policies, so we can do that more effectively with ample reserves rather than fractional reserves. And, and you know, you think about it, you know, thank goodness they did. If you consider Silicon Valley, that was a non-event because of that move over the last decade. But the QE and now the QT has become a what Fannie Mae was trying to do in the in the '90s, times I don't know zillions, and the Fed can definitely set the tenure. If the Fed, you know, as they sit in there and try, it, it would be it, it, actually you'd be very scared if they didn't do this. There's very bright guys at the Fed that sit down and say, "Okay, two percent tenure, 
Do we want it 1%? Do we want it at 3%? And they set it. Now, the Fed can never set the rate over the risk-free rate because that entails shorting. They, they can't short treasuries. They can't create more treasuries. And they, they can't keep, you know, we're going to sell as many treasuries as you, as you, until you get the drift that we want the rate 100 basis points higher, 200 basis points higher. But the Fed can very easily set the rate below what the actual risk-free rate is. And the risk-free rate is always there. It's, it's, it is the rate that's related to GDP, the economy, flows, and it's, it can't be altered by the Fed. However, they can definitely alter the, where the U.S. Treasury 10-year trades. So what everyone's been watching right now is, I, I think it's like blind men feeling the elephant. The curve, the inversion, all this commentary on U.S. Treasury 10-years is not the risk-free rate. It, it's just the, the waxing and waning of the Fed's administration of the rate to paint the tape, if you will, to say, well, we want a 4% tenure. No, now we want a 5% tenure. The actual risk-free rate I have at about 5.5%, 5 percent I think U.S. Treasury's got another, they're going to go to 6% before it finally closes in on where NGDP is in relationship to the risk-free rate of the tenure. I, I think it's going to close. And in what sense is the Federal Reserve holding the 10-year lower uh, than the, the true risk-free rate? I should say at the beginning, I thought you, were, you said that the Federal Reserve wouldn't change it before guidance. And now, I think now you're saying that they are. I think the Fed is at best in, in, in disarray. They're, they're being caught out in a big lie. And I, I'm, I'm not a Rudy, what's his name, saying end the Fed. I, I think the Fed is so necessary for the United States that it goes without saying. But the Fed went off with, without a doubt, this radical change of policy with Woodford, 2012 on, Delphic, Odyssean, so on. And they've been scrambling ever since. Like, oh my gosh, we buy 3 trillion treasuries. We have the weighted average of whatever we bought has moved. The, the, the treasury yield has moved. Why? Because that was the rate we agreed to sell. And we, we call a dealer, we call anyone up, we say, we will pay all treasuries you want to offer us at, say, 3%. In a, in a, of course, it's all different issues and, and different sizes and stuff. But let's say roughly it's just- But, that's, that, but that would be targeting a specific yield, which the Fed doesn't yes. do. Yeah, they, they do quantitatively targeting a as specific- long as, as long as it's below the risk-free rate, they target the rate. They, they sit there and they decide that this is the rate they want. The reason the U.S. Treasury 10-year is now at 5% is because they have decided they want it at 5%. They got this cockamamie idea that uh, they can control everything, that if they can control the 10-year treasury, that will have, okay, we can't do it with Fed funds, so let's do it with U.S. Treasury 10-year you know, and our five-year or two-year. The trouble is it's not, it's not the real risk-free rate. It's not the actual risk-free rate that is you know, based on every macro. There's far better economists out there. You had Warren on here earlier. He's far better than me. They, they can't set the rate above the risk-free rate. In other words, they can't be punitive, but they can always be below the risk-free rate or allow the, or allow the U.S. Treasury 10-year, for example, trade toward the 10-year risk-free rate. They can never go above it. And I think that's the process we're going in right now. And the actual 10-year risk-free rate is completely in accord with you know, the GDP as it is now. I mean, right, so what, was, what was the risk-free rate in the spring of 2021 what was the 10-year risk-free rate when GDP was growing at 16% per year? 
are you are you talking about quarter over quarter or annual no, or year over year? Yeah, and okay. I was just say the ten year when nominal GDP year over year was at sixteen percent, the ten year was at one point seven percent. So yeah, I just okay. think looking at a chart, the, the correlation between nominal GDP and ten year Treasury is is lagging at best. I would say the risk free rate, like the rate that the economy keys in on, is always has something to do, if not all to do with NGDP. Not, but NGDP is, of course, a, a zero duration number. It's, and in fact, it's, it's looked at in hindsight. There's usually 30, 60, you know, Atlanta GDP now is, has helped us get out of this a bit, but still people aren't using it beyond just to, you know, affirm their view. But the GDP is, it's not just a zero duration, it's actually a negative duration because it's, it's always in the wake. Okay. If you, if you do some just really standard bond type of math, you can figure out where NGDP4 value is. The NGDP targeting fellas do come up with this. And if you come up with like a, you can come up with a five-year or a seven-year forward NGDP, and that is aligned with U.S. Treasury 10-year. And it, it has to be because, or not, excuse me, U.S. risk-free 10-year. And it has to be because it, it, it the way you get the term premium, the way you derive the forward value of the NGDP, has to be in sync with that because you know the you know the hip bone's connected to the shin bone. You know? Okay, but, but George, so what was the when I'm, I'm talking about a huge disconnect between the ten-year nominal treasury yield and the ten and then nominal GDP? Uh, you say NGDP. So this ten-year risk-free number, it's it's a like how do you explain that discrepancy between the insanely high nominal GDP of, of 2021, biggest boom, you know, probably since, I don't know, World War II or something, and an extremely low U.S. 10-year treasury yield. What was the, what was the real GDP? Well, excuse me, what was, the, what was the real risk-free rate, which is, you know, not something that you can directly it, observe. It was, right it was, it was moving in, it was moving at the time. It was moving in accord with NGDP. In other words, that discrepancy didn't exist. So it and was at 16%? Well, it, it wasn't at 16%, but of course, NGDP is not at 16% right now. As we said, it was a zero duration rate, right? So the 10-year risk-free rate will not equal the, you know, it's you think of the curve, right? It's That's like the Fed funds. Uh, in fact, that is what Fisher says, that Fed funds equal inflation plus real GDP, i.e. NGDP. So the 10-year is where that rate will be for the next 10 years, roughly speaking, the risk-free rate. Okay, so, so sorry, let's just isolate it back to what was the, what about the real two-year rate in the summer of 2020, so which would encapsulate nominal GDP from 2020, summer 2020 to summer 2022, which I don't have the numbers. I'm, let's just say it was 8%. The, 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 10-year treasure, the two-year treasury yield in summer 2020 was very, very low. It could have been less than 1%. I, I don't know. Probably was less than 1%. I mean, I, you no, see what it, it, there's two... It, it very- that does not have this one-to-one correspondence. There's some guys who are better bond math guys than me, but I, I actually have the charts that that indicate that there really wasn't that, a great discrepancy. That the two-year so real two rate, the two-year risk-free rate, must have been seven percent. It, it was an, it was about aligned to a reasonable expectation of how NGDP will play out over the next two years. Okay, so then how do you get this risk-free rate that was at 7% in the summer of 2020 when the, the actual 10, two-year treasury yield was at 1%? What is this number? How do you get this number? I think this is the, the, that's the critical question, and that's a softball pitch for me. What we used to do 
was we used to figure out the term premium in various ways and means. And then we would grab, uh, often using euro dollar forwards and volatility and all sorts of stuff. It was, it was a pretty somewhat complex. And then we would go to the two-year, which we thought was the two-year treasury was not too far, or actually say the two-year swap rate was not too far from the two-year NGDP forward expectations. It, it made sense. It was, it was all aligned. And then we would just build the curve using that term premium so that we would get over any noise, like, you know, there's a play in three years or seven years funding or something. And it, it worked. In fact, you could trade on it and made a very good living on that. You no longer could use, first of all, the Fed decided to get rid of euro dollars. I don't know. They want to bury the body or something. I have no idea why they did that. And then the Fed also started to do this very crass QE which wasn't an ease at all. You, you can't find quantitative easing, but this is a sidecar here, and I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, rally up. But you can't find any ease in QE. You, you just, you look at NGDP, you look at personal consumption expenditure, you look at disposable income, anything, anything that would show an ease doesn't show it. So QE is not an ease. But anyway, what QE was was a very radical setting of rates by the Fed toward like they start eating up ZERP. You know, there's no doubt the Fed can hold Fed funds at zero all they want. And then they just started to eat down the curve so they hit the 10-year. But that was not the real rate. And, and the real rate is, is always aligned with NGDP spot and also its reasonable expectations, not in terms of like the Fed anchoring and forward guidance and all that crap, but what is a very reasonable expectations for like a home builder to plan his next five years. That, that was never, never been out of line. And the curve that people are focusing on only inverted uh, very briefly in 08, 09. Otherwise, it's been very, very steep ever since. So I don't know if you answered my question. So you said euro dollar swaps, which are you know interest rate swaps in the future. It's my understanding that back in the day, swaps traded at a premium to treasuries. Now treasuries always, almost always trade at a negative swap spread, meaning that you know, SOFR and then LIBOR rates are lower. Than treasury rates wouldn't would that invalidate what you said earlier about how the, the well I, I, always I, has to be higher? Where is this risk free rate, George? That you I mean you're saying that it's like that you have this crystal ball, but where, where are you getting these these numbers? Okay, For, first this isn't a crystal ball. Just just use common sense. Think of what happened to NGDP since April 2020. Okay, let's forget about like my rant going back to like Woodford. You know what a bad fellow he is. Let's say April 2020, and just think of what NGP happened. It wasn't really too mysterious that what would happen once the the massive size of the fiscal impulse came in, that NGDP would do what it did. And the stock markets and risky assets did reflect that for 2021. So therefore, the curve could not be inverted. It just can't be. It, it's It's like it defi- it's like saying that I get, George, you know, where are the numbers, George? Where are the numbers? I agree with you that uh, the the okay. actual number, the actual numbers, the first thing were Jack- way lower than they should have been, and the model derived numbers about what the realized GDP was in two okay, years, good. Ten, years hence, but was the way first higher. thing that's a really important step because most people defy that. In fact, I'd say J.P. Morgan defies that. Morgan Stanley analysis defy that. Everyone defies that that the risk free curve was positive. From April 2020, if I think right back to 2009, to today. Well, it, it was very positive until I think the spring of 2022. Yeah, in terms of upward sloping. Yeah. Yeah. It, no, it's been very inverted 
the way most people, as soon as, as soon as the Fed tightened up, especially, but but it's been very, you know, once you get past the Fed funds and ZERP, it's been inverted or very flat. Okay, so George, what do you say? The risk-free rate is from a model of an assumption that cannot- No, no, yeah, I, I, need you, I need you first to get in the right game. Okay. I, we, we can't play baseball in on a football field. Sure, sure. What's the game? I'm, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. The game is that NGDP has a great influence, if not the setting of the risk-free curve. Do you agree with that? What, what is the risk-free curve? No, I, I just need that. I'm being tricky as hell, by the way. Okay. NGDP, spot and reasonable expectations going forward, given all the data that you have, has a lot to do, if not sets, the actual risk-free pricing of money in terms of like one year, two year, three year, four or five. So do you agree with that? So if you're actually talking about treasury yield, I would say it should, but the past three years of treasury yields suggest directly that it does not. If you're talking about some magical fairy number that that we define as having to be sensitive to GDP, then of course. But I'm, no, I I'm, just, talking, I'm just talking common sense. I'm saying common that sense, sure. yeah. the risk-free rate has to be positive given the NGDP growth we've experienced for the last three years. It's, it's, it just defies common sense to think otherwise. Now, okay, if you, okay I, I'm going to assume that you said yes. Go with it. Therefore, what you have to do is find the positive curve. That's the first step. Not, not manipulate or have a fantasy numbers or magic numbers, as you say, but what information is in the market such that I can find a positive curve? Uh, yeah, otherwise, you're just like looking for, you're feeling the, the elephant's tail and saying it's a snake. So that's the first step. And, and where I start with, I used to be, you know, until last year, I could use euro dollars. Euro dollars were always positive. And then the Fed decided to ban them. I have all the data there if you, if you want to explore it. Until the Fed, you know, kiboshed euro dollars, like in April or, or May, April, March of this year, they were decidedly positive. In other words, they were in, in complete accord with what was happening to NGDP, not only in terms of the reasonable expectations today, but actually what, you, you know, you could do a backward, you know, a backward looking test of it. Yeah, it was pretty efficient. I don't efficient. think that's right, George. I think there was a curve in the euro dollar curve. It was very positive. You're, 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 you're very mistaken. I, okay. I can definitely show it. And yeah, because since 1988, every day, that's how I started my day was to look at Euro, you, you shouldn't you shouldn't take me on in terms of what euro dollars do, and it's just habit that I just keep doing it. So they're positive now. From spot like today, you know, the first contract to like say the fifth contract, there's you know it, it was up and down and all around. But once you got past the noise of the Fed and the current sentiment, like say two years on, two years out, we're always positive, and they're less positive, they're more positive. And then they just disappeared the euro dollars. So I, that was my that was the tool I used to, to extract the term premium. And then I would just build on top of like what looks like the most reasonable, efficient euro dollars. And it wasn't it wasn't it was rule based. It wasn't just like okay, this year I'm going to use one and a half. Next year I'm going to use two, three years. And then I'd build a curve from that. Um, and what about SOFR? What about the SOFR, which replaced LIBOR? It's a complete useless garbage. Why? It, 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 well, it trades at like 1% outstanding that euro dollars did. 
You got you go into the seven year Ford Safra, and I don't know, maybe it all changed in the last four weeks, five weeks, but it trades like eight contracts a day. It, it, it's a garbage. Maybe on the far out futures, they may be less liquid, but the short term contracts are very, very liquid. It, it's that that's that's just in Fed land. That's that's what the Fed wants you to see, and that's what they and euro dollars. You're right. That's what happened. But the euro dollars, the forward market, is only useful after you get past the Fed noise, after you get past the sentiment noise. And that's about two and a half years, three years. And so there's no there's no information in terms of like what's going to happen over the next four, you know, in, the, in terms of forward markets past, uh, you know, under three years, say. And three years out in euro dollars, which are very deep, very liquid, you know, huge outstandings right to 10 years, you know, not too long ago. It was always positive, always positive. But but it stopped stopped trading like a, a few year, a year ago. No, it was this year. They the final one, but it year, stopped but, being the main contract like a year ago. Yeah, it, not even main contract. It, they just said that okay, we'll we'll, we'll let euro dollars set Safra. That was forty basis points. Um, but we're warning you that euro dollars will disappear, which which I just don't get. I mean, that was the most profitable contract that CME had, but. April, what was it, March, April this year, mm-hmm. they just disappeared them. They, the euro dollars swim with the fishes. So I, I actually, I would reject that euro dollars are a risk-free rate because don't they widen substantially during periods of stress because there is some marginal credit risk? So wouldn't wouldn't the most upwardly sloping euro dollar curve be- No, there's, you know, there's not marginal. The brother failed? No, there's not marginal. There's massive credit risk whenever it's thought that the bank system will fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. We saw that in the TED spread in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Pathetic. I was writing letters to Anita Lowy saying, by God, if you, you got to take a look at this TED spread at 800 basis points, you know, or we're all going to, we're all going to die. Yes, you're right. So now you're but not reciting. But for that 2% of time, the Euro dollar is a very good proxy, not so much for the level, but for the shape of the curve in terms of, you know, you think about it, NGDP is not risk-free. You know, it's, it's sort of like a, a credit something or other. So the euro dollars are in very good lockstep with uh, NGDP in the Fords. Now that disappeared. So like, okay, where the hell where the hell do I find my term premium? And also, what do I do? Where's my starting point to build the term premium? We used to go at the, the first reasonable short rate, two years, three years. And by the way, I'm, I'm just describing what, Make Goldman Sachs a fortune in fixed income and, and a few other characters. Not many, not everyone took on this way of trading, but it works. It really worked. So you get, you can't start with the two year or euros or anything. There's no euros. So what, what do you do? So what I did is I try to find, okay, what's the best 10 year rate? And the best 10 year rate, I use 30 uh, year conventional um, mortgages, assuming that I have the same error in terms of its duration mismatch to the 10 years, but it, at least it will give me a spread that is somewhat consistent. It, it's, it, it'll be the, the spread from where the actual risk-free rate is versus the 10-year plus some curve, you know, because, you know, let's say they, they're actually seven years and it's like a year and a half duration, especially at, at lower rates uh, spread. Starting with that, I then calculate my term premium and then I work down the curve rather than what we what what used to be the standard practice, go up the curve. But now we can't trust anything in the short market. So I start with a 10-year and I, I take that 15-year versus 30-year conventional as a as a good proxy for where fives to tens is. 
And then I just use the term premium from fives down to figure out the actual risk-free rate. Now, Fed funds are, when the Fed's in the middle of tightening, Fed funds are supposed to be always over the risk-free rate. I mean, that's how tightening happens. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they call it now the R-star rate or the, the neutral rate. God forbid I ever call it natural rate. That spread is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like, what is the schedule for costing pricing risk-free money from two years up to 10 years? It has never been inverted. It hasn't even been that flat from since 2008, 2009, which makes sense, right? I mean, you know, that- George, as you know, I'm just saying this for you know, sake of argument and the audience, like the duration of a 15-year mortgage and a 30-year mortgage constantly changes. Like I know the S&P mortgage-backed security index, the duration- during this 2020 was two and that two years and now it's a duration of seven so your your spread you know what used to be a 210 spread is now a 730 spread like it's it's not it's consistent well actually what i what i deemed it to be was a five to ten year spread okay there was this dude called chichester and he flew gypsy moth a small biplane from new zealand to tasmania first guy to ever do it and he had to hit a certain island to refuel because the thing would only fly like 300 miles or something like that. And if he hit this low atoll, this low island, if he missed it, he would fall into the sea. So what he did was he purposely directed his navigation to be in air, like in other words, 10 degrees or so further north than it should be. So then time over distance, when he thought that he was in proximity of that atoll, he would just turn left 90 degrees. That's the same sort of thinking I use by deeming 30-year conventional mortgages to be a 10-year. I know it's wrong, but I know in which direction the air lies. And that's why I deem 15-year conventionals to be five years. I know the air, a little less than the 10-year, but I, I know what direction it lies. So therefore, since the directions are, are not too different from each other, or excuse me, the mistake, the air is not too different from each other, it is a reasonable approximation of five to 10-year. Even though in 2020, it would have been a 2-5 spread. 2-5, 5-10. What I'm doing is the 5-10 I know is longer than the 2-5. I know, I know it's longer than, say, you know, 5-7. to seven. I know it's long. It's purposely in error because I know which way the direction of the error is. And that does not modify the finding, which is that the curve was positive. Five, five, the five ten is what about the two ten? Why, why do you think the Fed, why the the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates and the two year is pricing in that that it will be you know above five percent for a really long time? Why are you people say the two ten is inverted? Why do you reject that front end of the yield curve? Well, well, let me flip it the other way. Let's assume that the Fed gives up, like it, it just says yakatis. You know, we're not doing anything with these Fed funds. And Congress sort of gets involved and says, like, gosh, we're, we're a little pissed that you guys did all this drama for us. Where does the Fed funds go? Does it go up to eight? Or do you think it might go down to three and a half? I think three and a half. So without the Feds forcing Fed funds above a certain rate, that when it's gone, the neutral rate, I'm not going to say national rate, the neutral rate, the R star rate is about three and a half, three. That's where the Fed state exits the stage. That is the real risk-free rate. In other words, that's the rate that 
is in coordination with the current waxing and waning possible of NGDP. It's not going to go to like 7%. It's not going to follow it up to 11%. It's, it's, it's going to be lower than what it might be over the next 10 years. And that's like about 3.5% now. So that rate to what you think your best go for what the real risk-free rate in the 10-year is, is your curve. I don't have the tools for understanding the exact pricing convexity, uh, duration, all the stuff I used to do day in, day out. It, you know, it was it was like you, you just yell up to the 10th floor and say, give me it, and you would have it in 10 minutes. I don't have that now, but I do have a really good understanding of what error I might be inducing with my very robust approach to it. The curve is without a doubt positive, and it has been positive since 2008, 2009. It might have been a possible dip, but as soon as the fiscal impulse came in, they, they, it, 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 it actually became much more, much more positive. I, I have um, some good slides. I, I, I don't think this is the place to show them, but I have some really good slides that can be used to present this. Jack, I don't know, this can get really complex. And, you know, we, we used to have like, you know, five-hour meetings three times a week, people, PhDs yelling and shouting each other over these concepts. Uh, and in the end, what it was, was what gave us alpha, what gave us the, the objective, the portfolio management assignment or trading. Um, and then people would shut up and they say, oh, okay, you're right. And then drive on. And so this is, this is formed, this is evolved. This is not, I'm not bright enough to figure this out. I, I, I'm not sitting here in my room just, you know, aha, I've discovered the, you know, the new, you know, all-encompassing theory of, of how capital markets work. This is just pretty well exactly how capital markets work from 1981 when I started, and also what I've read prior, to about 2013, 2014. After 2013, 2014, the very radical new federal policies kicked in, and it didn't work. It didn't work at all. And and so I, and sort of in a subversive way, I started hunting around, where, where can I find a way to use zero dollars to use that? But it's just not showing up, but it doesn't mean it's not there. And sooner or later, this is how capital markets will work. Otherwise, everything just comes apart at the seams. The last thought that I might leave you, I know we're going on for a while here, but if the Fed is not involved, as they say, then we're back to a pre-1913 type of economy. And that is a matter of like great monetary and asset pricing overshoots and undershoots because there's no governance. There's no, there's no breaks. There's no Miller taking the punch bowl away at the right time. And in that case, Minsky comes in. And Minsky was, was again, it's all common sense. It's not a difficult read. But he says that the economy constantly cycles through, or it does cycle through without regulatory oversight and governance, our monetary policy, from a hedge stage where everyone just doesn't want to lose money to a speculative stage, well, okay, let's increase the risk, we'll make some money, to where suddenly the, it shifts from the fiscal state funding of the economy to a private sector creation of debt, which, enters the, which, which then funds the Ponzi stage. And when the Ponzi stage is exhausted, it's not because of, of like, you know, S&P values or anything like that. S&Ps go to like 30, you know, you know uh, multiples then 
So it, it just mocks anything to do with earnings or fundamentals. But when it breaks, it 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 really severely crashes. And the Fed is supposed to prevent all that, and the Fed's not on duty. So if I'm right about the Fed not not being present, we haven't even started. I don't think we've even like gone through the full speculative phase. Hey, everyone. We're about to get back in the action. But before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high-frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty-gritty of real-world assets. So think stablecoins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in the mix. I'm going to be there, and so are the Forward Guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG20 to get 20% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. George, what does it look like for the Federal Reserve to be attentive to, you know, pop bubbles before they inflate and to, you know, if there is a crash to step in? Because I look at what the Federal Reserve did in March 2020 and all of 2020 and 2021, and I see the Federal Reserve extremely responsible in terms of quantitative easing, in terms of keeping yields at, at zero. Like it, when you say the Federal Reserve is not, you know, we're in a pre-1913 world, what, what, what makes you say that? Well, again, if you look at the data, like... Let's just look at disposable personal income, PCE, all, all the, you know, the, the, the journeyman stuff. There's no sign that the Fed did anything in 2020. They only did one thing, which is they ruined price discovery for corporate bonds with the secondary market corporate fa- uh, funding facility. And so corporate bonds just disappeared off the face of the map in, in terms of where the Fed set it. The Fed can always set rates below where they should be, but never above. As far as like the economy there's no sign of the knees. There's no sign of any sort of stimulus. There's no sign of anything that the Fed claimed they did. There's a very small amount of a very standard budget type of liquidity, you know, move, which the central bank's supposed to do in terms of like this bank or that bank needed like a hundred billion dollars on a Saturday. They got it. But as far as like boosting 1%, 2%, 3% and GDP are raising employment, the Fed did nothing. This is just the data. It's not. It's not. It's not just the data. It's not just the data. How, what do you mean when he says we had a huge, a huge surge in nominal GDP? The conventional wisdom says the Federal Reserve had some role to do that. You say it was Bingo. only fiscal, but but no one, neither side, George, your side or the other side, has the data to back it up. It's very, as you know, very hard to prove one thing. I, I might be wrong by about maybe a trillion, maybe five hundred billion. But I do have the data, and it's impossible to argue with the data. What's the what's the data? Well, if you look at M two, okay, or look at M three, look at M broad, whatever the hell you want to look at, and consider the transactional money, like the actual money that has to turn over to get you know people paid and, and get them to buy an Uber and stuff like that. That velocity that results in terms of how that money's working 
Um, whenever the Fed came in with like this COVID QE or any sort of measures that they took, the velocity dropped out of the, just dropped hard. And so therefore, yet the NGDP and the economy soared. How is it possible that velocity drops and NGDP soars if the Fed has any sort of monetary traction? It, it can't. It doesn't. And velocity has to maintain or even go up a bit if the monetary impulse is affecting uh, NGDP. And that there is no sign of that. Now, I can, I can very rudely, but I think yeah, good enough for a conversation, show that the fiscal impulse looking at velocity was about $3 trillion to $6 trillion. I can also show that the monetary impulse, there was some, was about maybe $300 billion. Most of that coming place in like year two, year three, after COVID. This is, a, this is just numbers. It's not, it's not very complex math. It's certainly not any closed form solution. It's just, you know, blocking and lifting. It's just journeyman stuff. This approach is also what the street and the industry used to do day in, day out, again, up to about 2013, 2014. The Fed got rid of M2. They do, they've gone out of their way to obfuscate it. They, they threw reserves into it. They, they've done everything they can to make it useless. And they're very disdainful of any use of, of monetary aggregates. They have to report it because that's the law. That's Humphrey Hawkins. But they're, you know, if you listen to testimony of Powell and other people, it's, they don't even talk about it anymore. But yeah, They don't talk about it, yeah. Yeah, money is the economy. And how the money turns over in the in a capitalist world, that's it. So it's not so much that they make policy with money; it's just that the money and NGDP, our growth, or any subsector that you think has some stability to NGDP, has to be demonstrated by money. And if money is not, which is the ballywick of the Fed, if money is not, it cannot be shown to be responsible for any of the changes in NGDP, up or down, but let's say up in this case, then it's not monetary. Yeah, I, would, I would challenge you on that. With in, in an era of ample uh, reserves where you have quantitative easing, when the Federal Reserve buys bonds from the banks, they then to replenish their collateral, they buy it from the private sector. And then so that's they credit the private sector with a huge surge of, of bank deposits. So it looks like bank deposits and grow, grow, grow a ton, and they do grow a ton. And that's not that economically stimulative per unit of bank deposit, but that doesn't mean it's zero. And the scale it's, of three is so massive. As I said, it's about it's about three hundred billion or so, six hundred billion since April twenty twenty. The Fed has huge impact. Money is money. Monetary policy is money. You know, it's, there there is something going on there, no doubt about it. But if you think of the switch from fractional to ample. And you consider that those ample reserves are part of M2 now, and they do nothing. They just sit there like, like a lump. They have no transactional role in the U.S. economy. The first step you have to do is net off reserves mm -hmm. from M2. And then you got to do some other things, like you got to bring M2 forward and some other, other stuff. You also have a massive amount, and I, I think Warren, your previous guest talked about this, you have a massive interest on reserve balances coming in. It's about $150 billion a year mm -hmm. where the interest on reserve balances, because the Fed is really worried that 
the banks will suddenly use these ample reserves and stop listening to them. And, and they, 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 they won't just be static. So they're paying them as per Fed funds, a really big chunk of money. It was like 10% of JP Morgan's earnings. It's not a small number. So you adjust for that too. And then you come up with an M2, which I think is useful to, to figure out like, what is the monetary impulse in terms of like the impact on the economy? And the way that the, the usual way to do that, which makes sense to me, is to use velocity of such adjusted M2 to see where if NGDP expands and velocity goes down, well, it ain't monetary. It just, it, it, it just, it, it can't be monetary. You know, it had to come from something else. And that, of course, is fiscal now. Because sure enough, that $6 trillion or $3 trillion or so expansion of NGDP is about equal to what the deficit was that's developed since April 2020. I think what I'm, I'm saying is, is like what a, like a thick neck practitioner who did make money trading talks. Uh, you've had two people who are on, on your show, previous guests, who are brilliant. I don't know if I agree with their outcomes, but Lynn Alden and Warren Mosler, you're just, you know, they, I, I, I would shut up. If they were in the room right now, I would just say, take it away, Warren. Take it away, Lynn. They are geniuses in terms of understanding these flows. This isn't mystery stuff. This is just this is just like this goes back to the Federal the Federal Reserve Z tables. Like there's assets, there's liabilities, there's flow. And no matter what the Fed says the flow is, the flow is the flow. And I, I think that's what I'm saying. The last I don't know what, you mean. Thing, what, what is you mean I, the flow is the flow? Well, that you look at the Z tables, you know, the, the Z tables are these just a tremendous tool accounting uh, for the whole the whole economy broken into household, nonprofits, uh, foreign, you know, banks, financial corporations. Uh, and it shows two things. It shows quarter by quarter, it shows what the level is of all the various assets and liabilities in the U.S. economy for that sector. And then it also has another table which shows the change that has happened in that last, last, last quarter for those sectors and then not only that, it gives it, it recites what it's been for the last 30 years for both level and flow. What happens in the U.S. economy? I mean, that is the U.S. economy. And if the theory and the, and the popular assumptions are not in accord with what's happened for the last 30 odd years, then I think it's a safe bet to say that the, you know, the, the popular assumptions are out to lunch. The popular assumptions that rates and balance sheets of the Federal Reserve have a substantial impact on the economy. That, that's one right off the bat. Uh, one, one interesting uh, little sidecar on that is that corporate profits is part of the, the, the major reporting for the BEA who reports on the, what's happening with the, the national economy. And corporate profits, so, you know, they, they, they show a very confusing, like despite everything I've said, they, they, they make an ass of me because it shows that they dipped hard. You check into it and you find out that corporate profits include the profit and loss of the Federal Reserve Bank's. So that 130 billion of, of interest on reserve balances that's being paid out is the, it's obviously a loss for each individual bank. It doesn't exist really in, in any sort of it's monetary. It's, the Federal Reserve and many banks are suffering from the fact that we have an inverted yield curve that you have to pay more on short-term money. No, literally, George, like how can you deny all short-term fixed instruments are based on Fed funds or so far, which are very closely linked? And you look at you know, the huge trillion dollar asset classes of corporate paper, commercial paper, 
you know, short-term government, short-term government bonds, short-term corporate bonds, federal home loan bank debentures, all of this stuff is like, oh, it's this, it's Fed funds plus 40 basis points. It's Fed funds plus 20 basis points. Like, how can you say that the short-term, all of those things are wrong? Yes. Okay. And the, way, the reason I can say that is that if you adjust corporate profits, and I know there's a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a rough assumption. NGDP County is a rough assumption. But if you look at that and you adjust for this Federal Reserve Bank weirdness of including them as part of the corporate profits of America, it doesn't add up what you just said. No, like I'm America- talking about the in- interest rates that are directly observable. Like you talk about, oh, the models are one thing, but you got to make money on the trading desk. This is just the thick necked observer. Like if you went into the trading desk, assuming that the short term interest rate was 3.5%, you'd be losing money every day. No, what, what's happened is all, the, all of my yoke got fired or left the industry. We don't exist anymore. We're like white buffaloes. We, we, we're just an extinct species. And the reason for that is that the Fed, unless you trade the sentiment, unless you trade the popular mem, you can't trade now. So it has nothing to do with reality. It has nothing to do with like what GDP is doing or what PCE is doing or what, you know, reality. It has all to do with like of the 200 thought leaders of the financial trading world and whatever duration, you know, let's say overnight or two months or three months, there is that crowd. What do they think? That is what you trade now. I've always been shit at that. And, and one day is it's all going to disappear. It's going to, realities will return. There, there's just no doubt about it. So the, there is an illusion going on that this popular sentiment, these popular theories with respect, Jack, things you've said is, is real. And I'm saying that it's real for now, but once that Ponzi stage kicks in, or once the Fed is forced to respond and, and actually get to work again, once the, the economy is made such that the Fed can operate, uh, we will return to reality. Wait, back in your day, Fed funds traded on what instead of the, the fake phony days of today? Well, I, I think it's gone way far than that. It's, it's, as far as monetary policy goes, I, I think we're in a terrible crisis. And because I, I, I see the Fed as like just vital for democracy. And I, I, I mean that. And the last time the Fed was in such a, at odds with monetary policy was at the end of World War II. Uh, the Congress and Senate, so you know, the House and Senate and the administration wanted to keep pushing the Fed to, okay, for another three months, I know the war's over, but we, we still want you to fund X amount of the deficit. Or, or okay, well, I know it's 1949, but could you please hang in there? Because we got all these servicemen coming back and we, we, we don't want to like go back to monetarism because it will screw things up. It went on and on until 1951, where, and this is a document that I think is overlooked and it's really key now, the Fed Treasury Court of 1951, where the Fed gained independence, separated itself from the policy making our results of the administration and Congress, and started to re- just go right back to monetarism. We need, we need the Fed Reserve Accord number two. I, I still don't understand. I'm sorry for interrupting. No problem. Is the Federal Reserve policy too loose now, too tight? How, in what way is the Federal Reserve accommodating the Treasury Jack, with, with them raising interest rates? Over so- and over and over again. I say this with every bit of experience I've had, yeah. every bit of reading I've had, every bit of thought I have. The Fed, as far as monetary policy, does not exist now. 
So what's what is the mistake? What what is what do we need the Fed and Treasury to do? Is it is it too too tight or too loose? I mean, there's it's interest rates are at five point five percent. The balance sheet is going down. These are fundamental realities. Is that too tight? Is it too loose? If it was too loose, do you mean it was a mistake to be so loose in 2020, 2021? Well, you, you might go back and it, it's not applicable now, but you might just read, read John Taylor's 1993 piece. Can you answer the question? Uh, I, I am right. I am. This is, this is not simple stuff, Jack. You know, it's, I, I, can't, I can't bash it into the latest popular mem. It's serious and it's, it's not that complex, but it has a lot of moving parts to it. If there's no Fed, it's because the Fed's trying to do Treasury's job and the Treasury is, I don't know what the Treasury's doing. But what they're not doing is they're not providing any oversight to what the Fed should do for the next, say, three years or five years. Congress is not asking, talk about softball pitches. They don't even ask the Fed for anything. They're a little grumpy about Silicon Valley. It scared them a bit. But as far as monetary policy, they just leave the Fed alone. You know, I, okay, this ain't Delphic. I get it. Okay, you guys are in charge. You're bright guys. What has to happen is that first, there has to be stability in the budgeting process. This fiscal surge has to end. World War II is over. We we have to we have to like have some sort of idea of where the fiscal impulse is going to be for the next five years, that is regular enough so that the Fed can be the trim tab to the much bigger, always much bigger fiscal impulse that comes from the the federal government. Only when that stabilizes, so that we can plan things out, so we can have some expectations, can the Fed have any effectiveness as far as monetary policy goes. That also probably means that, like this goofiness of like dual mandate, employment and inflation, it's like an oxymoron. It's an impossibility. You cannot have two mandates of employment and inflation. It can't be done. It's never been done. There's a trade-off. No, it's not a trade-off. It's just, it's just first of all, the, the Fed shouldn't be in policy, employment. The whole idea of the dual mandate came from Humphrey Hawkins and other, other rules. A lot of it came to, to a head in the 70s. When Congress was pissed off that the Fed was taking the punch bowl off away whenever they're trying to eat, whenever they're trying to ease to raise unemployment, or excuse me, raise employment. And so what they did was they said the Fed will not interfere with congressional's um, efforts to increase the economy, to stimulate. That was Humphrey Hawkins. That became perverted into becoming a dual mandate. Like what should not be interfered with suddenly became the Fed's job. And it's an impossibility. You want the Federal Reserve to be active in talking about the deficit in the same way that Volcker was? No. Okay. It's not so much, the Fed is not like a critic. The Fed is the fiscal agent for the US government. It issues and maintains an orderly debt market. It issues and maintains an orderly foreign exchange market for the U.S. dollar, as per directed by Treasury and state, not on its own. You know, we think the euro should be at 110 or 100, as it is doing now. And the Fed has no role in employment. That's policy. Like, what, what's to be done for job training or unemployment insurance or whatever has no role. The Fed has no role, nor should it ever have a role. And then... All it concentrates on is what's left over is inflation. Now, they added in, I don't know, what is the 30s or whatever? They added in that they got to keep a stable long-term rate. But they tried that in the 60s with Operation Twist. And then Bernanke tried it again with his own twist in, in this last, I don't know, seven years ago or so. 
can't be done. Like the they can raise rates in a parallel fashion, or, or excuse me, they can drop rates in a parallel fashion, but they can't twist. Like in other words, we we can't we can't induce. There's no yield curve control possible in the United States unless both rates are way out of whack, and then we can have one assume, you know, some sort of like normalcy. So the only thing the Fed can do and should do is inflation. And you know, this is this. You know, I'm not the only guy who says this. There's there's. A, a, you know, and you think the Federal Reserve policy can have an impact on inflation rates balance? No, right now they can't. They they cannot impact inflation now. It's just an impossibility. To implement, what circumstances would they be able to impact inflation? As soon as the budget stabilizes, and it used to stay, it used to be relatively stable because of the laws that had mandatory discretionary spending. So therefore, you you might have a political tussle, but you had a rough idea of what the budget was going to do for the next five years or so, and then you had the the debt ceiling, and then that that brouhaha. But there was a a governance, political governance on the budget process. So it was impossible to have this fiscal surge that we have experienced it unless there's a national emergency in which Congress votes on, which they did, and grants the the POTUS extraordinary emergency powers. They did it for COVID and he ran with it. He just took off with it. And that destroyed the stability or the the reasonable you know planning you could do for the fiscal impulse. It was, it was pretty a good idea of what it was going to be, what the deficit was going to be for the next five years. I don't like it. I do like it. It doesn't matter. You had a rough idea. It was all blown to hell, of which the last time was World War II. So that has to be eliminated first. If the Fed is to have a role, and maybe the Fed shouldn't have a role. Maybe there should be no Fed. But in that case, it has to be all in the political process. And I don't know if the U.S. is capable uh, you know, the the optimities and the popularities to fight it out in terms of what the budget should be year by year by year. So the Fed should be the, the, the sort of the tiebreaker or the role in terms of inflation, but they can't do that until until they, there's some stability in the fiscal budgeting process. I mean, how do you think sell-off in bonds will continue? And just can you outline just how bullish you are on stocks? And then do you have any particular sectors or individual stocks that you, you like? Okay, like, like cut to the chase. No, no, no. No, no, I, I hear you. U.S. Treasury 10 years, because they always have, will revert because the Fed just can't keep this thing going on. Either Congress will call them off or the Fed will realize how futile it is. U.S. Treasury 10 years will close with the risk-free rate. I might be wrong, might be right, but it's a lot higher than where it is right now. So first of all, the U.S. Treasury 10 years will close to that. The second thing that will happen- So um, that you go up, sell off So 10-year yeah, yield goes up, sell off Yeah. And then also, there's still some momentum to NGDP. So not only is it going to go up, but it's also going to go up to where NGDP is going to be at the time it goes up. So I think 6% U.S. Treasury 10 years is very likely. And the way the current temperament is right now is, oh, that's awful, that's a tightening, all, all this, this stuff that I, I think is bunk is going to come out. And that probably will cap- uh, you know, stocks, because stocks are still trading in this mem world, as is U.S. Treasuries now, but then as U.S. Treasuries return to reality, and we start to monitor and um, apply theory equals practice, goes back to theory, we get this feedback loop of what reality is, that will spill into equity. And equity right now is at a good 30 to 50% divergence from where NGDP has gone 
since uh, April 2020. In what way? Meaning what? Up. And then I, and then the, now I get into like writing a nice little fiction thing, but it's a, it's a good story anyway. Because there's no Fed, I think we hit a Ponzi stage. And that means that whatever rich cheap that the stocks have now, and I think they're cheap as hell, will just fly off in the stratosphere. And I suspect we're going to see a boom that we haven't seen for many, many decades. And I mean, how quickly do you think earnings will grow? Just a lot? If you think about S&P, S&P 500 earnings have disengaged from like reality a long time ago. What is what is Elon Musk's concern about earnings for Tesla now? Like, what, what, does he does he want them to be like right spot on? Does he want to even amp them up a bit, or does he want them to be low key and stable? Not in terms like what this quarter is, but for the next five year plan he has because he wants to finance his Tesla stock that he wants to have at some sort of stability to get his spaceships launched. So I don't think Tesla earnings are at all. Uh, a reasonable source for how the economy is doing and how the stock market should be valued. Let's take Amazon. Jeff Bezos himself has been stated that, oh, it's going to be a recession, so Amazon earnings are going to suck. And then he walks off. I don't think Amazon earnings are all that stable. There's only one company that I can identify that has no choice. They have to reflect reality, and that's J.P. Morgan. Why? Because of all the bank regs and and where they sit, they I, I sort of picture them as a large channel catfish sitting in the stream with its mouth open. And the all the nutrients and all the realities of NGDP, they have to eat it. They have no choice. Uh, J.P. Morgan cannot manipulate its earnings. There's only so much of you know forward expectations of, of credit faults that they can use. And I think they've used them all up. So J.P. Morgan, that's why J.P. Morgan's earnings have been a shock for, what, five times now? And I... I split that between zero duration stocks, which I call JP Morgan and others that just have to. McDonald's just the other day is a zero duration stock where they just have to take their, they have to take the earnings. They, they can't put it forward. They can't manipulate it. They can't do a double Dutch Irish thing, offshore tax scam. So that is the real earnings of the S&P 500, which do, which I think all companies are enjoying right now, which does align with what the BEA Corporate um, profits are showing. Tesla and Amazon, I think, are not representative of the median market cap company in the S and P five hundred. Like most companies are in the S and P five hundred, are profitable, and they their profits are correlated positively with uh, nominal GDP. It's funny you said J P Morgan and not, not manipulated. I would say the banking sector is the one area where it's actually impossible for some aspect of manipulation or assumptions that, that have to be present. It's literally impossible because you're making a bunch of assumptions about yeah, credit yeah, losses yeah. and that sort of stuff. But, and yeah, and then when you make when you you take to credit losses, right. you, you take them out of, out of reserves. Um, so what do you think will happen to the unemployment? Do you think it will stay really low? The, the labor market, what will happen? Well, to I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to really argue with what two years of data shows. I mean, who am I to say that next week initial claims are going to jump? I mean, we've had like what 60 odd, week after week after week of initial claims that, that have been almost stupefying how, how strong they are, week after week after week. And then I, I look at non-seasonally adjusted numbers in terms of like organizing them by week over week over that week, year over year, and look up and down for week to week. And non-seasonally adjusted show that it, it, it's, yeah, it might, next week might be the big bang, but you're very foolish 
to make a call on on labor right now when it's in in the, you know decades over decade well actually a fifty year high. Who am I to say that employment's going to wane, that it's going to fall apart when it's showing such incredible strength year after year for the last couple of years? Um, I think the safe bet to do is say, okay, you know, cover your ass in case like you know the, again this asteroid falls onto Earth. But meanwhile, just accept the fact that something's going on here that will probably result in a very strong labor market for the foreseeable future. What about your views on growth in bank loans, which have stagnated, you know, typically bank credit growth supports economic growth. Would you say that that doesn't matter because the fiscal stimulus is so high? I I would say that the reason, at first, I don't think they're really stagnating. What I see is bank credit's been flatlined for, you know, since Silicon Valley, or actually, actually, it started about three, about a couple of months or so before Silicon, actually two months before Silicon Valley. And I think, yeah, there, there's, there's a shitload of PPP loans and various other small business administration and various other loans and the stocks where they are, you know, with Digliana and Miller, you know, they, corporates, they don't need bank loans. Um, and it's as it should be in a, in a very strong economy. Now, if the Ponzi stage develops, they'll take off like all hell. And But we're not there yet. We're still in the I think uh, I think Warren Mosler said we're still in the the hedge phase. I I suspect we might be entering the speculative phase, but we're not going to see any action in bank loans until we start to end end the the speculative phase or possibly go into the Ponzi stage. Aren't all aren't most PPP loans paid back or or forgiven? Isn't that well over? You said it forgiven. How much? What's your number? Yeah, but that, that's not a that's not a new. It's not a I know, new. It, it, you're right. It's ancient history. It's only a year and a half ago. You're, you're sort of making my point. I think now. I think savings is a good idea, like the idea of excess savings, and I use eleven percent of disposable personal income as what the savings Americans want to feel safe. And then if you take a look at the, the savings that were produced from the COVID the first year and e- even into the second year, just monster. You know, you, you, we've all seen the graphs. They're, they're huge. And so there was, without a doubt, an excess savings. But of the last six months, regular savings have been able to maintain 11%. So there's been sort of a, a classic Keynesian pump priming that has succeeded such that the the excess savings are no longer being drawn down. But the excess savings have been drawn down from, I don't know what they were, two and a half, three trillion. It's it's almost an abstract, but it is a large number to, I have it right now, about 500 billion. But there's still ample excess savings. That is also the same, probably very similar to what the status is for corporate savings, you know, one way or another. And so where do you think nominal GDP rests out, rests out at? Like, what do you think it will be for this year? And what about next year? I see no reason why it carries on as it is. And I, I would I would expect, uh, I don't know if you you know it, but the last, I think it was just the last month, the Cleveland Fed medium CPI actually took a, a fairly significant drop, jump up. And being median CPI, that's a 16% trimmed, uh, where it doesn't contain, you know, the waxing and waning of, of energy, nor whatever's the, you know, the, the mm. choice in terms of dropping CPI. And that that was pretty that's pretty interesting. So I think inflation is going to like stabilize right around here, three three and a half percent, four percent, and then along with that, NGDP is is 
I don't I I I don't really see why it would drop much more below six percent, five percent. Very strong. Got it. And so you think that it's not that nominal GDP will reaccelerate and go back up. It's just that it will stop going down and stabilize at six percent, and that being such a high level with uh, inflation at three or four percent, so real GDP is at two or three percent. That is so far above expectations that the boom in stocks will continue. Yeah, and, and that's or not not the the boom the the panic buying that I that in my imagination will take place as it aligns realigns to where it should be versus the economy uh, evolution over the last three four years. A lot of can happen. We have an election coming up, so the question for NGDP is like, what can Biden do or must do? Even though like we we got this new House Speaker, but we have the Senate, you know, all this like commotion going on for the election of 24, what will, how will the fiscal impact evolve? Uh, You know, people want to get reelected. They want to get elected. Democrats want to hold whatever power they have. They certainly want to hold POTUS. So I think it's safe to say we're not going to see any cuts in the fiscal stimulus. Like we're not going to see any um, taxes raised. We're not going to see, we're going to see mouth mouthing, like Yellen's going to say, as she's saying that we're going to like, we're really upset about the deficit. We're going to cut it back, but we're not going to see any change. And then the the other kicker we got now is, is war. You know, outside, once you leave the ghastly realities of war, and as long as the ex, there's not an existential threat to the U.S., it's not COVID, but this is, this is going to be a big boost for the U.S. economy as we now fund not only Ukraine, but we now fund Israel. So how's that going to evolve? You know, is is Israel going to be told to stand still? Is that going to be cut in half or increased? It, it's 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 a ghastly way to look at life, but it's a very big component of maintaining the fiscal impulse, and so on. Now, on the other hand, if if it looks like you know, and I don't know what the heck Trump's going to do or not going to do, or if he's going to be in jail, but if we get a very hawkish, like deficits are bad and we will raise taxes and we'll drop, we'll raise them up 20%, I, you know, tax the rich, whatever, then yeah, that, that could really dent fiscal flows. And if it does, NGP will, will, will get hit. All the tightening and ease, all the stimulus is all in the hands of Congress now with, with POTUS as a sidecar or, or partner. It has nothing to do with the Fed, and that's that's a pretty sort of scary and interesting situation. In other words, now I've said in this past as sort of a joke, but now Marjorie Green and Matt Getz are far more important than any Fed governor. You know, like what they can do and not do. Like he got rid of the Speaker, you know, so he's got the guy's got teeth. That has a far more relevant impact on the fiscal impulse than what the hell Waller or even Powell says now, and uh, you know how. You know, is Trump going to come back on with Peter Thiel in, in, in alongside, or has does he think Peter's a trade? I don't know. It, it's it's a really interesting situation, and it has nothing to do with the Fed. So, George, if you think fiscal deficits will be provide such a boost to nominal GDP, why is it that you think inflation is going to flatline at three to four percent? I guess that is higher than the Fed's target, but you know, if we have this runaway fiscal deficit, you don't think inflation would be higher? Well, well, this is this is a key thing. Like why I, I admire Warren and Lynn's analysis is they're charterless. You know, they say they're MMT or whatever, but they they believe that the U.S. has unlimited lending or, or borrowing ability, and they believe that the U.S. dollar is relatively stable, and nothing's ever going to happen to the United States. 
So we have complete fiscal flexibility. You know, if we want to double the current deficit, we can. If we if we want to cut it in half, we can. I go. I, I don't think that'd be advisable. So there is no such thing as an excess deficit. There's no such thing as a runaway deficit. It just World War II is proof that that that's an empty phrase. Uh, I, agree, I agree with the, the core MMT claim of. The, there's no such thing as an impossible deficit. The real constraint is inflation. But that's my, my question is about inflation. If, if, well, if growth is going to cause all this growth, it won't also cause inflation as it did in 2022. Absolutely. And, and if like say the deficit were to double from here, inflation will double. I, I, I go right back up to seven. But this inflation, since it, the, 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 um, the status and the power of the United States is unquestionable, um, this Inflation is not nothing. It's not a debasement of the U.S. value. It's not. It has nothing to do with U.S. currency. What it is is a tax. It, it, it's just like okay, we Congress can't come to its senses. The POTUS can't do. But the guys who buy the debt, um, they want par back. You know, okay, maybe maybe I won't get. But we're, we're not going to accept ninety cents on the dollar. We're not going to go into a workout situation in the U.S. government debt. So what we're going to do is to reduce the real debt size by inflation. And so inflation should be perceived now as a tax. So if the deficit does double because of like the craziness of Congress and, and the president, maybe COVID-3, I don't know, then the inflation will kick in so that the U.S. funding, bonds, borrowing will return par to those who purchase it. And I think that's inflation. Now, this inflation as tax can be reduced in terms of its effect and therefore inflation reduced if the U.S. government gives a credible plan for how the deficit will be dealt with. Like they, they you know, forget, forget about the Fed for it guidance. If Congress comes in through legislation and rules and laws, let's say a debt ceiling type thing, so that deficit cannot go here and it can only be reduced there, that is an effective calming or shortening of the duration of the of the ability to get your par back. And so therefore inflation will drop. But if Congress just shows Looney Tune craziness, like chicken in every pot, let's buy votes, all this stuff. Um, if the COVID financing is thought to be made in air that it's just a boondoggle or, or you know a political ploy, then inflation will kick in, assuming that this is a constant way of life for the U.S., and inflation could double. But I, I don't think that's going to happen. And so the world that you do think is going to happen, where inflation settles out at 3 to 4%, nominal GDP settles out at 6%, so real growth is uh, you know, 3 or three or 4%, would you call that a soft landing or a no landing? Well, since I, I dismissed the Fed, there's no landing. It's, it's all of, like, you know. So no landing, yeah. Yeah, if, if Marjorie Marjorie Green doesn't get reelected, is that a hard or soft landing? It, it, it's just it's it's a non it, it's a non sequitur. So, but okay, but George, in that world of no landing, you don't think the Federal Reserve is going to hike more, or you just don't think it matters? I don't think it matters. It will matter very much for sentiment. But it, oh, by the way, I think there is a reaction function, and I think the Fed does manage to it, and that's to the S and P five hundred. Mm-hmm. You know, they 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 want the S and P to drop one hundred basis point, or you know, what ten percent. They will raise rates to six percent, for whatever reasons. And I do think the S and P thinks there's value in terms of their ability to maintain their integrity in the eyes of the market, the popular, you know, popular press, if they beat up the stock market. And I, I do think they do that. So yeah, you, they might do that. But I, 
at some point, they're going to be shown to be Potemkin. They're going to be shown that they just don't exist as far as monetary policy goes, and which the, the game's up. That could be next month. That could be, I don't know, three years. Now, the, the thing about inflation as a tax is that if you think about it, we've had like, you know, if you, you think of 1.10 times 1.07 times 1.06, we've already reduced the deficit by a lot in terms of real money. The know, debt the, by a lot, yeah. Yeah, by the inflation. And so we've actually done a big chunk, perhaps the lion's share of what had to be what inflation's role was or is, uh, has been accomplished. And, that, and this is sort of the joke is that I think if inflation's a tax, and then if you think that the U.S. sooner or later has to come to the wits, then Paul's, Powell's comment that it's transitory is right. It is transitory because, you know, a, a special tax which is inflation is always, you know, no one's going to legislate that we need this flat tax of 4% inflation and enshrine it in law. You know, that's just not going to happen. So therefore inflation does its job and therefore inflation is transitory. The fact that real rates are now positive, in other words, the rate of interest is higher than the rate of inflation, even for the U.S. government, the, the risk-free rates. You, you don't think, you think that we're still inflating away the debt because isn't, the debt growing faster than inflation? No, I, I find the, again, going back, I wish I could just throw, do an avalanche of charts and diagrams and math and everything, but you shouldn't let me. I think right now a 6% uh, U.S. Treasury real rate is roughly in accord with like inflation based upon like the past 40, 50 years of experience. Nominal rate, you mean? Yeah, well, yeah. just the real rate. Yeah, nominal, yeah. The risk rate. rate, yeah, okay. Yeah, risk-free rate. We got we got to get our uh, vocabulary down down pat. Yeah. All right. So George, good hearing your I think uh, kind of classic views on on macro and on debt. Tell us, can you close this quickly about your experience with long term capital management as they were closing up shop? Is it true that you <laughs> were working at the firm that helped just un unwind them? Oh, we, it was it, it, it definitely Bassus had a huge role. There was also I, I think it was BEA. I can't remember. There's there's another guy who had a huge role, and then I, I don't think it was a dealer. The dealers act were very, you know, they didn't want to touch the stuff. But there's a third player, um, that guy in Chicago. Um, anyway, and we just we the the thing that we all three of us went into, and it was just like uh, it, it was just like piranha passes was the vol swaps. And then there were some guys who were doing the risk equity arm. The, the, the thing that, that you know, they're given that's thought to be the most onerous positions for long-term capital really weren't that bad. The, the Danish home loans and stuff like that. And that, that sort of nicked them. But what really blew them away was that they started to do these five-year vol swaps. And the fact that I, that we did a lot of transaction four and a half years gives, gives the, the tenor of how long that, that position lasted was so they started to, they just did a, a fairly staid guy, Chief Hu Hung, who's a brilliant guy. He ended up being a partner with Merton um, after the, after the unwind. He just did a, a, a um, you know, a, a study of like where volatility has been for the last 40 years and take a, you know, and so therefore, you know, you should just write all you possibly can at 32. I think they started, no, they, I think they actually started at 29 or something like that. And this is five-year vol. S&P vol or, or fixed? S&P vol. Yeah, yeah. S&P 500 vol. 
now called variant swaps, but it was it was the fall at uh, 29, and then they kept shorting and shorting and shorting, and then they they had their fill. I think we did about a third of it, and it was a it was a pretty spooky position, but we did get a print of 45 vols short, and then I think the majority of it was over 40. So it, it was just it was not a brilliant trade. It was like no more chilling. You know, it's it's like what hyenas do when they they find it. You know, an ailing zebra. You know, they they just take it down. And it was a bit savage. You know, it's a very very blunt type of analysis. But it was it was probably the biggest PL I was ever involved with, and it was a team effort. And it was it was really regretful because the the vol actually did go right down to twenty one. In other words, long term capital was set to make a fortune out of this thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But we're you know we're, we're happy that they didn't do that. And so you were working for a, a family. You you weren't working for the bank, but then was Goldman Sachs also involved? They were an, they were an agent. Lehman was the big agent, and I I not I'm not aware of any dealer that took any position in this. And I think Goldman Sachs. I think Goldman Sachs actually, because of their their status that they ended up with, with the Fed and the rescue, were recluse from. They couldn't. They couldn't take primary positions. Um. It 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 was it was just a it, it was just a class. I don't know. I don't know what the hell. McAtee was one of Meriwether's partners, and he was an old Muni guy, and the word had it, and I, I think the story is credible that for about a year before they went down. He would be screaming and yelling at Merriweather, like, you know, you're you're just an arrogant prick. You got to do this. And he's like the only guy I could talk to him that way. And Merriweather just, he just carried on. Um, I'm sure he's not the same personality, but, and I'm doing a little dig, but it reminds me a lot of Citadel right now in terms of how they can't do wrong. They're all powerful. They they control markets and they do. I've lost uh, some personal money in this zero trade date to expiry shit. And maybe that's why I'm projecting this. You know, I wish them bad, but they have the same sort of assured confidence and size that long-term capital had. Do you know how directional they are? I mean, are they buying all this Russian debt? And no, I think yeah. long-term capital management was was not quite as directional as you think it was. They're they're heavily leveraged. You know, you you mm-hmm. can't get to this like crazy hundred to one leverage being directional. I mean, yes, yeah, so I me- I meant. Buying Russian debt and then shorting it, you know, shorting Thai debt against it or having those spread trades on. That's what I meant. Oh, I, I know. I, I I think Citadel is run with impeccable craft and mm-hmm. brilliance. And I think they're harvesting the the dopes who actually go out and do something so stupid as out of the money JP Morgan calls, you know. And you talk about yourself there, George? Oh no. Uh, <laughs> and and they're just they're just like they're like this massive you know, row of 20 combines that just goes up the, the Great Plains from Oklahoma up to Manitoba and back down again. They're just harvesting um, yeah. and more power to them. I'm sort of surprised that with Citadel that nobody questions the fact, okay, they made, I don't know what it was this year or, you know, last year, but the year prior, they made, you know, $38 billion. Some large, or was it $16 billion? I can't. It was the hedge some... funds made a lot of money. The securities firm, which is which is different, also made a lot of money. Right. Yeah. And if you think of their size and their role in life and where they are in the food chain, that that, that can't be possible, really. You know, there, there's some point where where it's it's not a there's not this found money of that size. So whatever they're doing, they're they're going to have a, a compass. They're, they're, and it's not just it's not just my 
pissed off attitude to it, you know, to suffering, I think, from them. But you, they're at such a size that they should only make the risk-free rate plus a little bit, you know, because they're bright guys. So let's say 10%, 9%, they can't make 30%. They're too big. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know. I, I don't know what their margins are. I there is Virtue Financial, a, a publicly traded competitor, so they're they're public. And Virtue Financial, they make a lot of money, but they're they make a lot less money than I would have thought. And I think the stock is trading where it was in like 2018. I don't know that much about it. George, let's let's leave it there. Thank you so much. People can find you on uh, uh, Bicker in Brattle on Twitter. And uh, thanks so much. Talk soon. Yeah, you know I'm open for anybody who wants to have a question or a dialogue, as long as it's not just an insult. I'm up for any any interaction at all. Yeah, there we go.